0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North America, and all the ships at sea. This is Philip Terzian, literary editor of the Weekly Standard, with our, annu- uh, our annual, our weekly podcast of the Books and Arts section of the Weekly Standard. This for the June 30th, July 7th issue. We have a combined issue this week, um, a little bit longer than usual, um, uh, uh, although the Books and Arts section is the same length. And this week, we have a lead piece in the section, which is partly to commemorate the fact that this issue uh, coincides with the centennial of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in Sarajevo, um, and uh, which, of course, the event which precipitated the six weeks of, of catastrophic developments that ended up with the, uh, the powers of Europe going to war with one another and precipitating the Great War, which ended the century of peace after the uh, uh, end of the Napoleonic Wars, with a couple of exceptions, such as the very quick, albeit decisive, Franco-Prussian War in 1870. But the Great War of 1914-18, which we will are, are about to descend into the centennial of and we'll be observing, presumably, for the next four years, uh, began with, uh, with that assassination 100 years ago. And one might say that in many respects, from Iraq to Ukraine and beyond, we are living with the consequences of World War One to this day. Lord knows when and if those consequences ever will dissipate. Anyway, our lead piece is a review of a book by a British historian called Peter Hart. The name of the book is The Great War, A Combat History of the First World War, published by Oxford University Press. Our reviewer is uh, J. Harvey Wilkinson III. Um, I have a. I have a habit, which I enjoy indulging, of occasionally matching uh, somewhat unlikely people with interesting subjects. And J. Harvey Wilkinson is, in fact, a judge on the Fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Richmond. But a uh, a distinguished author in his own right, um, uh, I first became aware of, him, aware of him years and years ago when he wrote uh, what is, to this day, the authoritative history of the bird machine and the history of Virginia politics but uh, Judge Wilkinson is a man of many parts and um, has written a very elegant and interesting essay on this book The Great War which is actually a a account of the war um, not so much from a political diplomatic strategic standpoint but from the point of view of the soldiers um, who fought it? As everybody knows, of course, when the, uh, England and France um, uh, uh, went to war against the Central Powers, uh, and uh, England, France, and Russia against the Central Powers—Germany, uh, Austria-Hungary—there um, uh, was an assumption that it would be a relatively short, perhaps six-month conflict, ending by Christmas, 1914. But of course, as we know, the the developments in armaments uh, in the previous century uh, did not uh, quite match the strategy and tactics employed by the commanders of the war and so it quickly devolved and of course the the Germans uh, their their strategy depended on um, a quick uh, invasion of France by way of Belgium ending in Paris within a certain timetable well that timetable wasn't met and uh the uh, as often happens the signposts along the way <coughs> uh, uh fell by the wayside the schedule wasn't maintained and so of course the western front devolved into um uh, uh basically a siege and there was four years of trench warfare with some movement back backwards and forwards there has been and and Judge Wilkinson goes into this in some detail. There has been since then a series of kind of revised views on on the strategy and tactics of the war for a long time up until comparatively recently the um the the watchword among historians was that the soldiers of World War one were lions led by donkeys, which is to say they were courageous and capable soldiers, but their generals were not very good. They just kept throwing the soldiers up against um, the armaments and ammunition of of the day to no avail. And that has been, to some degree, there's been a fair amount of revision of that view, especially with regard to the British generals, and in particular with Sir Douglas Haig, who was ultimately the the uh, Commander of the British Expeditionary Force uh, in on the Western front. and and this book makes the point, and Judge Wilkinson goes into it a, a bit, that Haig was a, a a better general than he gets credit for, that he learned from the errors of the past. He learned from his own mistakes, and that in fact he did actually succeed. In uh, not only grinding down but also outmaneuvering the the Germans to some degree, and of course that plus the addition of the entry of the United States into the war in 1917 uh, made its uh, uh, made the, the victory of the Allies inevitable in the end. So anyway, it's a it's a to 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 start off the centennial of the Great War, as I say, which we will be observing for the time being. Um, I think this essay is a good way to get started and I commend to you both um, Judge Wilkinson's review and the book itself. That is followed by a very interesting essay by Henrik Baring, who is a uh, critic and author who lives in Copenhagen, is in fact Danish but writes very capable and capably in English, I'm happy to say, um, and has in fact published several books in English. Uh, anyhow, um, uh, Henrik has done a review of a, of a Thames and Hudson book called The Self-Portrait, A Cultural History by James Hall. And it's, it's really, it, it sounds like an interesting book. Henrik makes it sound interesting, I guess I should say, um, with his review, which is largely an, a, a kind of cultural history of, of self-portraits, in, especially in the West, and how they have evolved um in in form and style over time um i use as an illustration for example uh, one of albrecht durer's um self-portraits he did many from which dates from the year 1500 where durer is depicting himself i mean durer was was um uh, probably durer's greatest admirer was durer himself and this is a fascinating self-portrait where he depicts himself in the in the traditional pose and appearance of Christ. Um, uh, I suppose some might argue that this is Durer's way of saying that artists have a kind of uh, godlike stature in our culture. Who knows exactly what he was thinking of? But it's kind of interesting the way uh, artists who began depicting themselves in the late Middle Ages, uh, first as as minor little figures on the periphery of paintings, but then actually painting portraits of themselves. And, of course, within a few hundred years, these were uh, perfected to a very high degree of uh, sophistication with people like Dürer, and, of course, Rembrandt did innumerable self-portraits, down to the present day, um their as I say, their their style and manner changes and both this book and, and our our reviewer Henrik Bering try to try to figure out what the evolving character of self-portraits tells us about the history of art and to some degree the history of European civilization. So it's a very interesting piece. Which is followed by a a review of a book entitled, Should I Go to Grad School? 41 Answers to an Impossible Question, which is from Bloomsbury Press, and it is reviewed by Abigail Lavin, who is a, a young woman who is currently a uh, uh, in the uh, uh, public relations um, uh, business in New York, but in fact used to work here at the Weekly Standard. And... Um, left the standard and uh, Abby is a, is a Chinese speaker and actually went off to the People's Republic of China where she had a very successful business career for some years but she ended up deciding I guess before she descended into adulthood uh, um, finally that, that she wanted to take a fling at graduate school and came back to the United States and got herself a master's degree in philosophy at Columbia Um, But I thought Abby would be the perfect person to answer the, or at least evaluate the questions and answers of this book. And she does so very amusingly and very skillfully about um, why people decide to go to graduate school, why some people decide, as she did after an interim in the real world, to return to higher education, Uh, the various reasons why people get graduate degrees, whether master's degrees or doctorates. And if you've made the decision, um, uh, some practical information as well about how to go about it, um, how to decide what it is that uh, you want to do with your um, heightened uh, resume, and and also uh, deciding exactly what it is you want to get out of graduate school. It's actually a Practical guy. I mean, Abby has written a kind of charming essay about the whole notion of 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 deciding to go to graduate school and what one gets out of it. But it's also there's a there's a practical element here, especially for recent college graduates. Uh, instead of uh, instead of being handed uh, Dr. Seuss's Oh the Places You'll Go or something like that, this might be a book that um, would be worth giving to them as a your, uh, your, any graduate you know who who might be considering um, uh, graduate education. In any case, um, reading Abby Lavins' piece on the subject would help as well. This is followed by a essay by uh, Sarah Lodge, who is a, a Scottish um, uh, academic who frequently writes for the Weekly Standard. But it's it's not a review. It's actually about the new. Um, excuse me, um, Interior Playhouse in London that's connected to the Globe, as you know. About a dozen years ago, a replica of Shakespeare's Globe Theatre was built on the, uh, I think on the very site where the Globe Theatre once stood, on the south bank of the Thames. The Globe, of course, is approximately an open-air theatre, and in that time, the need for a, uh, a, a theater with a roof, that, where I guess productions can be put on, and uh, other parts of the year, and perhaps uh, um, under other circumstances. And there is now something called the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse, which has opened and has already had a number. It has a. It has. I've I've included a. a picture of the playhouse stage as well as a still from one of their recent productions and it's a very interesting theatrical space and of course the theater itself is is kind of an interesting story in itself and the the plays are put on in very innovative and imaginative ways and uh, in effect uh, come down to one more Reason why you might want to consider visiting London either this summer or next—that um, in addition to the uh, many theatrical attractions of London, this new Sam Wanamaker Playhouse at the Globe Theatre uh, is something that um, certainly I want to see, and I think you probably want to as well. Our review this, our movie review this week from John Podhoritz. Is of uh, a, a movie entitled *The Fault in Our Stars*, which is uh, based on a novel. Uh, it's a sort of a novel for young a- adults by a writer called John Green, which, as John points out, is a kind of um, it's a kind of variation or inversion on the Holden Caulfield uh, uh, story and *Catcher in the Rye*. Um, as John says, what the author did was reimagine Holden Caulfield in the 21st century. I'll quote here. Then imagine that uh, rather than being anxious and upset and in a funk for no good reason, Holden Caulfield actually has a very good reason, which is that he has terminal cancer. Then imagine that he falls in love. Then imagine that Holden Caulfield is actually a teenage girl rather than a teenage boy. Well, at that point, you have the premise of The Fault in Our Stars, um, which is, uh, uh, as you can imagine, is uh, something of a young love, tearjerker film. Um, but as always, John um, looks at it from a uh, a, uh, a historical and cinema historical perspective in a very interesting way and, and as always has taken a movie that I, I myself could take or leave, but now having read John's review, I really am kind of curious to see the film which, uh, as far as he is concerned, is otherwise a film worth seeing. And I hope also that our Books and Arts section is a segment worth reading in this week's Weekly Standard. I thank you very much for joining me for this week's podcast, and I look forward very much to our next uh, meeting a little over a week from now. Thanks. Bye.